Bible scholar Christopher Wright tells a story about a friend of his in India who was led to Christ by reading the Old Testament. Uh, At the time, he uh, taught engineering at a local university, but he had grown up among the Dalit, which they used to call the untouchables, the outcast community within his village. And his family had suffered greatly uh, from harassment at the hands of high-caste Hindus who looked down upon them. They had experienced violence and injustice. Um, He had a great thirst for vengeance against his oppressors, and he thought if he'd study really hard all through school, he could get into a university, and he could then pursue a a career teaching in a university and, and, and get a job with influence and power and then take his vengeance upon those who had hurt his family so badly. The first day he arrived at college, he found in his dorm room a Bible translation in Telugu, which happened to be his state language. And he had never read the Bible, but he knew that the Bible was the scripture of the Christians. And so he opened it up randomly and just curiously started reading, and it opened up to the story of Naboth and Ahab in 1 Kings 21. It's a story of unjust King Ahab who uses his his influence and power to steal the land from a poor man Naboth, an ordinary farmer. And the story had familiar elements. This this friend of, of Wright says, this was my story. His family had experienced the same theft of land, the same false accusations. They too had had family members murdered. They had experienced the brutality of the wealthy and powerful against ordinary farmers. And then he read on, he was shocked, and he was amazed that he read about another man who came into the story named Elijah, who in the name of some god of the Bible denounced King Ahab and said that he would be judged and punished by the same god of the Bible. This was astounding, his friend said. He had millions of gods to choose from, but he had never once heard of a god like the one he was reading of in the Bible, because here was a God who took the side of the victim, of the suffering, and and condemned the government and condemned the powerful people for their wicked deeds. He said, I never knew such a God existed. And this man continued to read the scriptures and eventually learned about Jesus giving his life for us and about his resurrection from the dead and his claim to be Lord and to be the savior of the human race. He learned about his own need, therefore, then to forgive his enemies. But his road to Christian conversion began simply because he opened up a Bible in his language and began to read. We can easily miss how powerful Scripture is. Scripture says that it's alive, that it's living and active, that it has the the power to change the human heart. Isaiah says it goes out from God and doesn't return to him empty, but accomplishes the work for which he gave it. It has the power to transform a life. And it's God's word. On this Reformation Sunday, I want to uh, draw our attention to the ultimate authority over us. Stepping away briefly from our series on the leading woman of the Bible to remind ourselves of the power and authority of Scripture. Only a God, only what God says in Scripture can bind our conscience absolutely. And this flows from the fact of what the Bible is. It has the power to change us. 
And St. Peter wrote to the early Christians to remind them. He was, he was on his deathbed just about. It was late in his life. And his very final words, he says, there's something that above all, if you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus, something that you must understand. It's his swan song. Second Peter, the first chapter, beginning in verse 12. This is God's word. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside. And our Lord Jesus has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from him in the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here, in his dying words, chief among the apostles, St. Peter says, above all, you must understand that this is not a fairy tale. That it's not that prophets and apostles had this internal religious experience and then tried fallibly to describe it. No, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what do we see here? We see a charge for us to, as followers of Jesus to surrender to God's word, the Bible, whatever it says. He emphasizes what Scripture's not. It's not cleverly invented stories, he says. You must understand. It didn't come about from some prophet's own interpretation of his experience. It never had its origin in the will of man, he says. And he reiterates instead what the Bible is, what Scripture is. He says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the, the language traditionally that Christians use of the dual authorship of Scripture, that, that each book of the Bible was written by a human being, and yet that human being was so superintended by God the Holy Spirit that the words that were put on parchment were words from God. 2 Timothy 3, St. Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed. We traditionally translated as inspired by God, but it's not inspired, it's breathed out, it's expired from God, breathed out of his lungs. It's what Jesus himself had said about the scriptures when he said, not the least stroke of a pen, not the tiniest mark will pass from God's law until everything has been fulfilled. It's the jot and tittle view of inspiration that Jesus gives where even the little strokes are there by God's design. And, and, and to have 
a posture of humility before Scripture, to accept it as an authority above us, above the church, above my life and my family, that gets to tell me what to do. It, it requires a posture of love between you and God so that you can actually trust him. It's the cost of any love relationship is that God gets to, any love relationship is the person you're in love with gets to tell you you're wrong. You know, that's, that's the price of love. Um, you know, you're probably familiar with the novel The Stepford Wives. It was later made into a movie, The Stepford Wives, which was later remade into a movie, The Stepford Wives, and it's the story is basically that the, the men of Stepford, Connecticut, get sick of their beautiful, wonderful wives constantly criticizing them and complaining and not doing what they want. And they can't stand that, and so they all decide to get rid of their wives and replace them with drop-dead gorgeous model robots. It's the original Android. It's not a phone. And so they would get home, and there would be this drop-dead gorgeous wife smiling at them and telling them how beautiful and strong they were, vacuuming in high heels and plunging neckline and clutch of pearls while there's a huge feast upon the dining room table. And his, you know, steam-ironed uh, a newspaper spread out for him so that he can ignore her while he eats. And, and she never says anything critical. She never says anything negative. She never disagrees. Everything he does is always so wonderful. But the one thing that's missing from that relationship is what? Love. Because the price of love is that the one you love gets to tell you you're wrong. And a lot of us want to step for God where he's really beautiful and always there and does everything we want, but he doesn't get to tell you you're wrong. He doesn't get to tell you you don't get to do that. He doesn't get to tell you you need to repent and come to me right now because I see you're playing games with me and you don't get to do that if you're going to be my follower. Instead of a step for God, a real God gets to tell us we're wrong and it's the price of being in a love relationship with God you know, St. Augustine, 1,600 years ago from North Africa, said if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, it's yourself. See, none of this happened in secret when Scripture was being given to us. He says we were eyewitnesses of Jesus. He's describing the transfiguration in which Jesus was revealed in blazing glory to be God in the flesh with, with, with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets testifying that this is the Lord. Uh, you know, they, they experienced this. Peter, James, and John were on the mountaintop with him, and they all described what happened. You know, Jesus attests, for example, to the authority of the Old Testament. He says that everything spoken in the, the, in, in the law, the prophets, and the writings must be fulfilled. Those are the three sections of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the Torah, and, and the, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the wisdom literature. Um, and so Jesus is saying, and when he said that not the least stroke of a pen would pass from it, he's saying the Old Testament is the authoritative word of God. And, and then you have Jesus promising to his apostles that he would remind them of everything he had said and done. And then by his Holy Spirit, he reminded them. And we get the Gospels. And we get the various epistles of the New Testament. And, and then, you know, Peter attests to, to Paul also being authoritative when he says that some people twist and confuse Paul's words as they do the other scriptures. The other graphe, the same Greek term for the Bible. Uh, you know, this apostolic community 
was there, having walked with Jesus and seen him. And it was in this community that the New Testament was produced, and they attest to one another's authority, and so that when the church hands us the scriptures, these are the words that were given to us, not just from the church, but by God himself. The Bible is therefore, because of what it is, God's word, it's therefore incredibly powerful. He says, you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Kids, have you ever been in a completely dark room where there's no window and there's no light bulb and all the lights are turned off and you close the door behind you and there's not even that sliver of light under the door and you're completely blind and you can't see anything. It's completely black, completely dark. There's nothing and you, you don't know where the furniture is and you're afraid to take a step. You take one hesitant step because you don't know if there's a step going down and you'd trip and you'd fall and you'd hurt yourself and you can kind of feel that there might be a piece of furniture over here but you're kind of trying to figure out where things are. You can't see anything and then somebody switches on a flashlight and then you can see and you notice that flashlight and you notice what it's pointing at because what it's pointing at you can see friends we're in darkness a world that's radically out of line with what it was meant to be filled with suffering and sickness and deceit and deception and death and betrayal and jesus is that flashlight and and the light shining from him is his word And you do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Scripture is incredibly powerful. It says that they were firmly established in the truth. You know, uh, think of the power of Scripture. I mean, some of you you know the Bible stories. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How many of you know that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? How many of you know instead the story of Rakshak and Benny and the giant bunny? Yeah, that's... Gen Y, right there. We see you, millennials. Um, it's the Veggie Tale version, but God is incredibly powerful because here are these three young Jewish men. They were probably uh, uh, eunuchs based on the treatments that they had been given according to Scripture. Uh, these three young men believe the, the Bible. They believe God's Word, and they're told to bow down to this giant false god and worship it as if it's god and they say no but the bible says there's only one god and it's the true god who made everything and other every other god's fake they're not real folks it's make-believe there's one real god and we're not going to bow down to something else as if it's god and so the, the the bad king says you can't do this and so he says i've got a giant furnace it's a giant pit filled with fire shooting up you can't survive inside that. You drop a gold coin in it, it becomes liquid immediately. You drop a log into it, and poof, it just becomes immediately smoke. And he has all three of these young men thrown into that pit, into that fiery furnace. And yet he can see, the king can see inside there that they didn't go poof, and they didn't become liquid. They're still there, and they're moving around, and he sees there's a fourth figure in there. The only three went in, but there's someone else in there with him. And he calls in and says, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, what's going on? He says, our God is protecting us. We believe his word, whatever he says, and he's protecting us. And then he has them brought out and treats them with honor. Because he realizes that their God was in there in the furnace with them. And their God is a true God that no one should play games with. I remember the first story. I think of the power of God's word. The first story before I became a Christian in college. I was probably my junior year of high school. Um, One of the things I would do when my parents were out of town. 
uh, I grew up atheist, so it was weird, um, is I would sneak down and get the King James gift Bible that my mom got uh, in 1965 for her wedding and crack the spine on it, and it would kind of fall apart a little bit because no one had ever read it. Um, and I remember reading in the Old Testament just you know, the things teenagers get into when mom and dad aren't home. I mean... can ruin your whole life that way. So the, one of the first stories I read was in um, the Old Testament, the story of King Hezekiah being threatened by Sennacherib, the, the, the king of, of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were brutal. I knew that from world history uh, in school. I mean, they would, they would subjugate entire people groups, take their land from them, move them hundreds, thousands of miles away and resettle them elsewhere to keep them completely broken. They would butcher people left and right. They slaughtered entire populations. And, and we actually have historical records of this same account outside the Bible. Um, but uh, what happened is um, the Assyrians under Sennacherib had, had destroyed every other city in the Middle East, uh, taken people captive, deported them, slaughtered populations where they would resist. And, and, and every people would pray to their God and they'd still die or be sent away as captives in chains with, with hooks in their noses. And, uh, and it wasn't a piercing, trust me. Uh, and so, you know, then they came up to Jerusalem and all the, the Jewish people, all of God's people had, had fled into Jerusalem and hid behind the walls of Jerusalem. So you have this overcrowded uh, city packed with refugees who are hungry and they're thirsty and they're miserable and they don't have many weapons. And then you have the world's largest army, hundreds of thousands of troops surrounding, you know, laying siege to, to the city of Jerusalem. And Sennacherib, uh, 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 you know, speaks or his general speaks and he tells the people in Hebrew so they could all hear uh, as they're all on the walls that all of those other cities that we have destroyed had their gods, and all of their gods were destroyed because we are more powerful, and your God isn't going to rescue you or protect you any more than their gods protected and saved them. And then he lied and said, in fact, your God told me, the Lord told me to go and do and tell you all of this and do all of this to you. And, and he said horrible, blasphemous things about God and misused God's name and lied about God and, and, and told them that God could not rescue them. And, and Hezekiah, he believed God's word. He knew God was powerful. And he had nothing to do. They couldn't fight. The walls were going to crumble. They were all going to die or be sent into captivity. And he did the only thing he knew to do, because the Bible says, go to the Lord. And he went and walked up the steps to the temple of God in Jerusalem. And he went into the temple of God. And, and Sennacherib had sent a letter saying all these lies, all these filthy lies about God and how weak he was. And he wouldn't be able to defend them. And he just spread that letter out before God's presence and said, Look, Lord, upon what your enemies have said. And he went to bed. And the next morning, he and the Jewish people our spiritual ancestors got up and walked up and looked over the walls and they saw 185,000 corpses, 185,000 bad guys, enemies who were going to kill them and destroy them and take everything from them. The angel of the Lord had come in the middle of the night and 185,000 lay dead of the plague right there before their eyes. And Sennacherib went back to Nineveh, cowering, knowing that he could not face the God of the Jews, the God of the Bible. It's incredibly powerful. 
uh, really powerful because the Bible is God's word. It's God's voice. That's what it is. And so we want to surrender to it, whatever it says, because of whose word it is. And understand also that God's word is specifically a word about Jesus. It's a word of grace to his people. You can't think of scripture apart from Jesus. He tells us here about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's what the, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of his day for saying, you know, in John 5, these are the scriptures that testify about me. You know, who's the Bible about? Jesus. Kids, who's the Bible about? Say it louder this time. Let's scream it. Kids, who's the Bible about? That's right. It's not a rule book. It's not a love letter. certainly has its rules. Love letters have rules, too. You all understand that. Uh, it's a message from God of grace. There's, there's only one hero in the Bible. You know, there are all these stories that are all historically true, but, but none of them give us heroes. You know, you're tempted to think of, of, you know, Abraham as a hero, but he almost sold his wife off twice, and he did it on purpose because he was a coward. He, he, you know, he committed adultery. He disbelieved God when he promised him. That's not a hero. God loved him, and he saved. <laughs> but damaged goods. We're all damaged goods. You think, oh, King David, what a hero. But think of what he did to Bathsheba. Destroyed her life. Um, murdered her husband. Uh, he's not a hero. You think, oh, well, there's St. There's Peter. He denied Christ three times. Oh, there's St. Paul. He said, I'm the worst of all sinners. Uh, you know, the only hero in the Bible is, is Jesus. Um, have any of you ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible? Raise your hand if you've read the Jesus Storybook Bible. Yeah, it's really good. Sally Lloyd-Jones, um, probably best-selling children's Bible of all time by now, I suspect. But um, in her introduction to the Jesus Storybook Bible, she writes this. She says, there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are really telling one big story, the big story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue us. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby, and every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see the beautiful picture. Because Jesus is speaking on every page of the Bible saying, Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy. My burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you want Jesus? Kids, do you want Jesus? Read his word. That's where you'll see his power come to you. Adults, do you want Jesus? Is he what you want in life, or are you just trying to use him to get something else that you think is really going to save you? Because if that's the case, you're going to fail. He, he won't play that game. He's the Lord. Um, but if you want Jesus, if you want to see the face of God, all you need to do is surrender to him and look to his word, and you will have power in your life. And through you, you will love others and represent Jesus all the days of your life. United to Jesus, repentant, broken, with the empty hands of faith, trusting him, the Father speaks to us of grace, saying, you are my beloved child, whom I love. As we're united to Jesus, he says to us too, with you I am well pleased.
Harriet Tubman grew up enslaved uh, kids. That means that she had been stolen and was treated like a piece of property and was made to work for other people against her will without any pay. And if she didn't do what they wanted just the way they wanted, they'd beat her. Um, in Maryland in the 1820s, she was born. And, um, and when she was five or six years old, she was hired out to a Miss Susan to watch her baby. And she would cradle the baby to rock it to sleep. But when the baby would, would, would cry, um, they would beat Harriet for letting the baby cry. Um, she carried scars from being lashed and whipped like, like, uh, like you shouldn't do to an animal even. Uh, she worked in the fields and had to wade through marshes to clean out traps. In 1849, when she was 27 years old, her owner was going to sell her and her brothers in order to, to pay off his debts as he had done. He had already sold her sisters, and, and she was afraid they would end up in the deep south where they would be treated even worse and be further from the possibility of escape. And so she began praying every day for her master. She'd pray, oh, dear Lord, change that man's heart and make him a Christian. And when it didn't happen, she changed her prayer and said, oh, Lord, if you ain't never going to change that man's heart, then kill him, Lord, and take him out of the way so that I don't, so that he can't do any more evil to anybody else. Shortly after that, he died, and Harriet was filled with a lot of remorse she said, oh, I would give the world full of silver and gold if I had it to bring that poor soul back. I'd give everything, but he was gone, and I couldn't pray for him anymore. Later that year, she heard the Lord speaking to her, God speaking to her, urging her to flee to the north to gain her freedom. We have a picture of Harriet. Could we get that picture uh, uh, photograph? Um, Harriet said, God's time is always near. He set the north star in the heavens, and he gave me the strength in my limbs, and he meant I should be free. I would fight for my liberty so long as my strength lasted, and if the time came for me to go, the Lord would let them take me. So she prayed for God to make her strong. She said, I'm going to hold steady to you, Lord. Whatever you say, I know you will see me through. She traveled by night. She hid by day. She escaped across the state line into Pennsylvania, a free state where she was then a free woman and could no longer pre be treated like a slave when she was north. Now, over a period of 11 years, Harriet made 13 rescue missions. She freed over 70 slaves. During the Civil War in 1983, she became the first U.S. woman to lead an armed expedition in battle and ended up freeing 700 slaves that day. She kept risking her life to help more people gain freedom. Many times she barely escaped. She relied on God to speak to her she, and to protect her as she lay in swamps and buried herself in potato fields and crossed a rushing river. And the God of the Bible was Harriet Tubman's strength. The words of the Bible constantly flowed through her mind. She was always praying to the God of the Bible. And yet Harriet Tubman had less access to the Bible than anybody in this room over the age of five. Because Harriet Tubman, who memorized huge portions of the Bible, was illiterate. As a slave child, she was not taught to read or to write. Although she couldn't read, she filled her heart with scripture. How'd she do it? She'd hear a preacher reading the Bible, getting ready to preach a sermon, and she would put it to heart as much of that as message as she could. She would be memorizing it in her head to get those words inside of her. She would memorize an entire passage. She would quote scripture to herself throughout the day so she never forgot it, verse after verse after verse. She hid God's word inside her soul and allowed it to fill her. And as a 
follower of Jesus, she spent so much time memorizing the Bible and meditating on it. She pondered passages, turning them into prayers. She'd pray for God's presence. She says, I prayed all the time about my work everywhere. When I went into the, when I, when I went to the horse trough to wash my face, I'd say, oh Lord, wash me and make me clean. When I took up the towel to wipe my hands, I cried, oh Lord, for Jesus' sake, wipe away my sins. When I took the broom and began to sweep, I'd pray, oh Lord, whatever sins in my heart, Sweep it out, Lord, clean and clear. Scripture often became alive inside of her with God speaking to her. She relied on his voice. Abolitionist Thomas Garrett said, I never met any person who had more confidence in the power of God's word spoken directly to her. Her biographer, Sarah Bradford, wrote, Sudden deliverance never seemed to strike her as at all mysterious. Her prayer was the prayer of faith, and she expected an answer. And when when surprise was expressed at her courage and daring or at unexpected deliverance that no one else would have expected, she would always reply, don't I tell you, missus, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. She'd simply pray, I trust you, Lord. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me, and I will go wherever you say. With a soul filled with the word of God, with the power of God, a heart surrendered to God to obey his voice wherever he leads in constant conversation with Jesus. Harriet Tubman did the impossible, a great woman of God who led many men and women alike to freedom, and yet she was proud to say, on my underground railroad, I never once run the train off the track, and I never once lost a passenger. It was the God of the Bible who worked in her. Let's pray.